Well, good morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, you can keep it open to Job chapter 23. Job chapter 23, where we're going to be studying this morning. When was the last time you had a really bad day? You ever have those days where you wake up and you just can't wait to go back to bed? Like whatever it was that happened, maybe for some of you something erupted in the first five minutes. Maybe you woke up to the shrill scream of a kid who says, now you're going to have a bad day. Seeing all these kids reminds me of that when ours were young, that sometimes they have a different agenda than you do. But the really bad day, the day when everything you had planned falls apart, the schedule you made that was perfectly designed, the car you had planned to drive breaks down, the work didn't go the right way you intended to, someone else's agenda rode right over top of yours, and everything you had just fell apart, and you can't wait to just go to bed. And you pray as you fall asleep, I hope tomorrow is better than today. Well, all of us have had bad days. Some in this room have had traumatic days. And those are different than bad days. Bad days, things go wrong, but no one gets hurt. Traumatic days are those days where your life changes. The worst possible day. Maybe when you got that phone call of a loved one who passed away. Maybe when you got that diagnosis of something in your body that's unhealthy and now you have life-changing consequences you've got to deal with. That's a whole different category. The book of Job is... An incredible story of a conversation that starts in heaven and then a series of actions that take place on earth. That when you look at the story of Job, you see a man who goes through some of the worst possible scenarios, the most difficult of trials, the most challenging and compounding circumstances. And we get to see in his mind and how he handles some of this. Job always fascinates me as a story because... It's written from the perspective of somebody who's not part of Israel. You're the nation of Israel that God is working through and speaking to and developing and deploying for his purposes. But then you've got this story of a man named Job who's a Gentile, who's living his life to the glory of God, to honor of God. But when Satan approaches God, in fact, go to Job chapter 1. A conversation takes place between Satan and God. And God volunteers Job. Job chapter 1 picks up with introducing us to this man. Verse 2 says he has seven sons and three daughters and all the possessions in verse 3. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. I mean, this is the greatest of all the men of the east. Job is the preeminent leader. He's the one who has all the wealth, all the power, all the influence it talks about how his family would gather, verse 4. All this takes place, but look down at verse 6. There's a day when the sons of men came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where did you come? And Satan answered and said, from roaming about the earth and walking around it. Now, obviously, there's an intent with his perusing of the earth. He's not just going for a stroll. He's looking for someone to attack. The Lord then says to Satan, verse 8, Have you considered my servant Job? I just want you to stop for a second. I mean, think about this parentally. In a conversation you might have around the house, of a job needs to be done. And if you have children, you may say, well, let's assign that task to that kid. Hoping that that kid's able to do the job. And you assign chores around the house and everyone has their responsibilities. But... That's a level of responsibility and delegation we understand. Let's go to the level of 
Satan looking for someone to attack. Remember, 1 Peter says that Satan prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's what Satan's doing. God knows what Satan's doing. Satan makes that known to God. And God says, have you checked out Job? I mean, <laughs> think about that for a minute. God volunteers somebody and said, you want somebody? Go try Job out. There's no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? I mean, now Satan's going back to God as if to push back and say, yeah, you, you put all your blessing on him. He's not going to turn from you because you give him everything. Of course he loves you because you give him everything. Verse 11 says, Satan challenging God, but put forth your hand now. Touch all that he has, he'll curse you to your face. I mean, this is like a dare. This is like a challenge. This is Satan saying to God, yeah, take it all away and see if he still loves you. Verse 12 of chapter 1. Satan, or the Lord says to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. God did put a surrounding protection on Job and told Satan... Don't touch him. And so as you can read through the rest of chapter 1, on this onslaught comes along and all of his animals are then taken. Verse 17 talks about the bands of Chaldeans that come through and take the camels. The sheep are gone. The oxen are gone. All this incredible carnage that takes place as they're ripped away. Then verse 18 says, that your sons and your daughters are eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. A great wind came from the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house, it fell, and they died. And only one escaped. I mean, in, in the course of just a, a few minutes, possibly, you have servants come running in and saying, it's all gone. It's all gone. The, the animals are gone. Everything you have has been raided. And then the last dagger to the heart comes in and says, your children are dead. Every one of them in an instant is dead. Job, in a, in a demonstration of the character that's in him, verse 20, it says, He arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What a statement. What a statement. What's our reaction when something we won't have gets taken away from us? Something small. You lose something. You, you lose a piece of jewelry that you love. You, you lose a friend through some traumatic experience. Something happens in our life, and our instant reaction is not the Lord gives, the Lord takes, blessed be the name of the Lord. Our instant reaction is, how dare you, God? You can see the anger that's pent up in us so often and the humility that's pent up in Job. Where Job is truly a godly man that at the point of testing does not result in anger against God. He just simply says, God, I came into this world with nothing. I'll leave this world with nothing. All that I have already belongs to you. In verse 22, look at that last verse of chapter 1. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. He didn't look at God and say, it's your fault. How dare you? 
Now, that alone is traumatic enough. But Satan's not done. Remember, a roaring lion doesn't just take a nibble. Satan, as the lion, wants to go and destroy. So verse 2, he goes back to God. And God, chapter 2, verse 2, God says to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan says, from roaming about the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, what's the question there? What's your Bible say? Have you considered my servant Job? Like, God putting Job back in again. I mean, Job's just lost all of his children, lost all of his possessions, his wealth, all of his notoriety. He, he's got nothing. He shaved his head. He's in sackcloth and ashes. He's mourning. He's grieving. And God says to Satan, have you gone after Job? I mean, and he says, there's no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing, the, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity. Although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Well, Satan then says, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now. Touch his bone and his flesh. He'll curse you to your face. The Lord says to Satan, behold, he's in your power. Only spare his life. See what God did? Is he drew back the protection that was around him. It was protection around Job. Don't touch Job. You touch everything else, but don't touch Job. Satan does all that. Then he comes back, and God says, okay, you can touch Job, but don't take his life. Don't kill him. Now you're pressing a man back to, he's got nothing. There's no place now to retreat. Even if you lose everything externally in your heart, you can still have peace. You can still have calm, calm and contentment in your heart. But now God is saying, no, Satan, you can go invade everything. You go invade everything about this man. And so he attacks, and you can read through what takes place next in chapter 2, where Satan then sends against Job, look at verse 7, sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting amongst the ashes. I mean, this is an assault against the body internally and externally. You got nothing. This is an attack on Job's body where mentally he's being worn down, physically he's being worn down, emotionally he's being worn down. This man has nowhere to go, nowhere to retreat. In fact, you'd hope that at least some voice would be a voice of encouragement. But look at, even the attack comes from his own wife. Look at verse 9 of chapter 2. His wife says to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Whew. I mean, the most powerful, influential voice of reason in his life, his wife, who's next to him through all the challenges and trials of life, in that moment, she turns on him. He's got nothing. He's got nothing. Verse 10. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not adversity? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Well, the story continues, and you can see in verse 11, three friends show up, and they show up, and I mean, who wouldn't want to have some wonderful friends show up? Your wife's against you, and you hope that some band of brothers come alongside, and they bring some encouragement. And certainly the rest of the book, the majority of the book is, Detailing the three different waves of assault from these three friends that bring against Job more charges and accusations of some private hidden sin that he must have been incubating. They come along and 
Maybe their intent was not to cause more pain. But they smelled smoke and they thought there was fire in Job's life and they wanted to go root it out. So they showed up and only compounded the problem. Instead of compassion, prayer, and companionship, they bring accusations, conflict, and contention. And back and forth, the tussle goes between them and Job as they try to root out what they believe is hidden sin in Job's life. And extract from him some kind of confession. And they, in turn, become part of the problem. Externally, Job's lost his crops, his cattle, he's lost his children. Internally, he's lost his health, he's lost the support of his wife, he's lost the support of his friends because now he's under their attack. And really, there's nowhere to escape. I mean, you think of the day, there's no HIPAA laws that prevent someone from coming in your room. Like, there's no place that he can go and hide. He can't go to the urgent care or the clinic and get behind a door where the doctor is going to treat him. There, there's nothing. There's no private shelter. There's no clandestine resort to escape to. There's no ambient or sedative drug that he can put himself in a coma. There's no Netflix to turn on to get distracted by. There's not even earbuds to insulate yourself from somebody else. I mean, where do you turn? What do you do if this is you? I think if we can jump from chapter 2 to chapter 23, what we see is Job's answer to what you do in the middle of unexplainable chaos. What do you do in the middle of unexplainable trials? What do you do when you're left standing saying, I don't know why this isn't working. I don't know why things are falling the way they are. Now, certainly, even though some in this room have been through incredible trauma, I don't think anyone in this room would say, Job, I know how you feel. Because what Job describes here, what God describes about Job's life, is an incredible amount of trials. But nonetheless, this same antidote that Job uses to survive this trial is something that every one of us need to have in mind to survive every trial in which we are engaged. We pick up in verse 8, and as my brother read earlier, 8 down to verse 14 is what we're looking at. This is Job's answer for how to deal with this entire trial. It starts with the perception. It starts with what he sees or what he doesn't see. The perception, verse 8 and 9. He says, Behold, I go forward, but he's not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. If he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. And he turns on the right, I cannot see him. He says over and over again, I cannot perceive him. I cannot behold him. I cannot see him. He says, what do you see? The answer is nothing. Nothing. I don't have an answer. I don't know what he's doing. I literally do not know what God is doing. You go through trials and people come along and in a good-hearted way say, what do you think God's trying to teach you through this? And maybe the answer is legitimately, I don't know. And maybe the answer even more is, maybe he's not trying to teach you anything. Maybe he's trying to show Satan something. I mean, there's a level of conversation that we have access to that Job has no idea about. Keep in mind, God never tells Job about the conversation that takes place between God and Satan. Job does not know about that conversation. Maybe what God is doing is trying to show Satan how irrelevant he is, how utterly unable he is to conquer the heart of one who trusts in God. And maybe what God's doing in your life is showing the enemy how useless they are. And yes, you have to endure the trials, and yes, you have to endure the tragic consequences of living in a fallen world, but maybe the trial has nothing to do with you personally. It has everything to do with the purposes of God. What Job is saying is, my faculties are unable to tell what he's doing. 
This goes against human nature because we want to know why, right? If you have children, you know one of the first words your children learn to ask or say is what? I love you, right? No. No child has ever come out and said, thank you for the great experience of incubating me. I love you. No. They come out and they say, why? And it gets longer. They take a one-syllable word and turn it into a ten-syllable word. It's like, why? just drives you nuts. But about 20 times in the book of Job, Job asks, why? In Job 3.11, he says, why did, I die? why did I not die at birth and come forth from the grave and expire? He's saying, why was I not stillborn? I'd rather... Why? Why, God? Why did I have to go through all of this just to lose it all? Job 3.20, why is light given to him who suffers and life to the bitter of soul? God, my soul is extinguishing. Like, why do I have to live? Can't I just die? Job 7.20, why have you set me as your target so that I am burdened to myself? God's aim is accurate, but God, you've pinned me to the target. It's right here, and it's hitting me with every wound. Job 10.2, I will say to my God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend with me. Job saying, God, give me an answer. Explain it to me. Job 10.18, why then have you brought me out of the womb? Would I not have died and know I had seen me? Job 13.24, why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? I mean, Job's peppering God with the why question of God, explain it to me. Job 19.22, why do you persecute me as God does? Speaking to his friends, why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Job 21.7, why do the wicked still live? Continue on and become very powerful. Well, that's a real question, isn't it? Why do those who hate you get to have a great life? Job 24.1, why are the times not stored up by the Almighty? Why do those who know him not see his days? Over and over again, Job just says, God, why? 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 But you notice that God does not owe us an answer. He never gives an answer. But in our human flesh, we think that somehow a rationale makes the present understandable. If I just know why, then I can better endure the what. If you just explain it to me, then I'll feel better about my circumstances. That's how our minds work. We want to know if we're suffering, we're at least suffering for something good. At least give me some validation to all this stuff I'm going through. But do you think it would have made Job feel a whole lot better if God said, well, here's the deal. Satan wanted to test somebody, and I gave him you. And it wasn't enough, so I gave him you again. And so I'm putting you back into this thing. I'm throwing you back into the wood chipper over and over again just to see and show to Satan that He's irrelevant. Do you think that would make Job sit there and say, oh, I get it. That makes so much sense now. Thank you. There's no explanation that's going to make Job content. It's not going to quiet or calm our heart if God explains himself to us. What Job is telling us is crucial. What Job is saying is, I don't know what he's doing, and that's okay. I've got to get to the point in my life. You have to get to the point in your life where I'm okay without an explanation. In fact, God even tells us that. He says in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, there's something good about knowing that he's doing things that I don't know about, and I'm okay with that. 
I'm not the judge and jury over what he's doing. I'm simply serving him. But the perception's important. He says, I, I don't know what he's doing. But that goes right then into verse 10, which gives us the plan. Here's the plan that Job has enacted long before this trial even began. He says, verse 10, but he knows the way I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Catch the juxtaposition there. He says, I don't know what he's doing, but he knows. I don't know where he is, but he knows. I have no idea what his plan is, schedule is, or why he moves the way he moves, but he knows. He does not find out. He does not discover. He does not learn something new. He does not investigate and now comes to a better point of conclusion. He is fully informed of my pathway. The whole thing Job says screams Psalm 139, where in Psalm 139, the psalmist says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me, past tense. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. That little statement means that before the thought hits my mind, God already knows it. God knows what you're thinking right now, and he knows what you're thinking in 10 minutes. There's nothing in your thought life, past, present, or future, that's hidden from God. In fact, Psalm 139 verse 3 says, you scrutinize my path. It's the idea of studying your path, looking at each individual step you take and noticing the nuances of it. You scrutinize my path and my lying down, and you're intimately acquainted with all of my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all. He knows every word that's about to come to mind and roll off our tongue. Verse 7 of 13, Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, here we are, we're back to dimensions again. If I go up... You're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that's the word for the grave. If I go down to the earth, if I tunnel into the earth, I get to the bottom of my tunnel, and you're there. Verse 9 of Psalm 139. If I take the wings of the dawn, that's a beautiful image. Growing up in California, we had mountains. I mean, like big mountains. And the sun would rise over one, and you could sit across the valley and watch in an instant from the light that crests this mountain hits this one. And in an instant, light starts to hit that mountain. And as the sun comes up, it fills the valley with light. That's the imagery of that phrase, the wings of the dawn. If I could saddle light, Job, the psalmist is saying, if I could move at light speed and rocket across the universe, I get to the other end and you are there. I mean, even light speed travel is not a Star Wars thing. That's Psalm 139. If I take the wings of the dawn... If I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. That's how securely we are in our master's grasp. That's how tightly we are held. That nothing is hidden from his sight. He's fully aware of everything at every time. And for both Job and the psalmist, that's good news. That's good news. If right now what I'm saying to you brings conviction, you know you're hiding sin somewhere that you're afraid God's going to discover. But if you live your life before a holy God with a heart that's completely, continually confessing sin, asking his forgiveness, the information of his knowledge of you is not a threat. That's actually comforting because you know that he is always with you. But back to Job chapter 23, he says, he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, 
when he has tried me, when he has tested me, when he has put me through the furnace. He puts me through these trials of life, these incredible, devastating circumstances. What he takes from me, what he gives to me. Takes my children, takes my cattle, takes my wealth, takes my livelihood, gives me a complaining wife, three antagonistic friends, and covers my body in sickness. That's my trial. He says, when that trial shows up, that trial's gonna do something. And this is the perspective that Job has to have, to know the plan. The plan is not to understand God's rationale for this, it's to understand what God's doing in him by this. He says, when he has tried me, I will come forth as gold. Remember, Job's saying this to somebody. There's an audience that's sitting around him that's throwing darts constantly. There's an audience around him of people that are launching accusations and saying, Job, you're worthless. Job, you're hiding something. Job, God's got you under his punishment. What have you done? What are you, what are you keeping from us? And Job says, boys, you're missing the whole point. I don't have anything to hide. But God knows that there's stuff in me that has to be burned out. And it won't be burned out by anything short of the full furnace fire that he's plunging me through. And in doing so, what you're going to see emerge is gold. That's not bravado. That's not Job saying, hey, watch this. When I'm done, I'm going to be better than you. That's not arrogance. That's Job saying, hey, this is what God does. God puts us through trials so that the result is something that's useful for him in ways never before imagined. James says a similar thing in James chapter 1. He says, consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, that's the refining fire, the testing of it. The sounding of it, the playing with it to make sure you find any crack or nuance that's broken. The testing of your faith produces endurance. Endurance. That's what the result is. And this endurance has its perfect result, that you're perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It means that there's integrity in your faith, that there's no holes in it. There's no gaps in it that, left, that are left unfilled. What Job is saying and what James is saying is the same thing. That there's a trial that takes place in your life and the intention is God is going to expose what you could never see otherwise. Expose both in terms of the sin that's in us, expose the character weaknesses, expose the anger, expose the jealousy, expose the selfishness, but also expose us to his, his characteristics, his attributes in ways we could never see before. It's through this trial that Job sees God's sovereign control of all things in a way that was unfamiliar before him. It's through the trial that Job sees God's kindness and his compassion, even, the, even in the midst of a trial that he allows. As God removes impurities and exposes weakness and leaves behind something that cannot be consumed or destroyed. The hottest fire can't destroy gold. And Job says, bring the fire on because God's giving to me and forging in me something that he will use for his purposes. Well, if that's the plan, then there's a pathway in verse 11 and 12. A pathway that carries him through this. He says, verse 11, my foot has held fast to his path. I've not, I have kept his way and not turned aside. My foot has held fast to his path. There's a pathway that's characteristic of those who walk in righteousness. I can tell you what it's not. Psalm 1 tells us, how blessed is the man who does not 
walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the path of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish, is verse 6 of that same chapter. There's a pathway of the wicked. There's a pathway of the unrighteous. And that's a pathway that's marked by the counsel of the wicked, the path of sinners, and the seat of scoffers. That's not the path Job is talking about. Job is talking about a path that's marked by righteousness, a path that's marked by holiness. Oh, you see that other path sometimes, and it's awful tempting, isn't it? You see how people respond and how they work and how they care about their lives and they give no care or reference to God. It makes us jealous sometimes to see all the ease and comfort of life that they have. Mark down Psalm 73. This is where even the psalmist senses that envy. He says in Psalm 73, verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There's no pains in their death, and their body's fat. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Behold, these are the wicked, and they're always at ease, and they increase in wealth. We can understand that. We can understand that. We can say, why do the wicked get all the money? Why do they always win the lottery? Why do they have all the ways to avoid taxes? Why do all the things that they have in their life just work? And verse 13 of Psalm 73 says, Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands of innocence. <laughs> Maybe I'm doing this all wrong. Maybe I need to dabble and sin a little bit. When I ponder to understand this, it's troublesome in my sight. Until I came to the sanctuary of God. Then I perceive their end. He said there's, they are destroyed in a moment. They're utterly swept away with sudden terrors. Who do I have in heaven but you? Beside you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength and my heart and my portion forever. That's where this resolves. It's not in longing for, yearning for the pathway of the wicked and the ease and comfort of life. It's in longing for the pathway of the righteous. As he says, he knows the way that I take. My foot has held fast to his path. This is the path, as Psalm 119 says, how can a young man keep his way, that path pure? By keeping it according to your word. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Proverbs 4, 26, watch the path of your feet, and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Turn your foot from evil. That's the pathway that Job is talking about. He says, I've not turned aside. I've not turned away. I've kept and held fast to your path. But not only that, along the path, but I had sustenance with me. Verse 12 gives us that. It says, I've not departed from the commands of his lips. Neither my feet or my lips have left you, God. I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. That is such a vivid illustration. I've treasured. That's a word for holding something secure. Putting it in a safe place. Intentionally having confidence because it's a source of life and hope. And so I'm going to hold it. With a grasp that's unbreakable, I'm going to treasure this. Psalm 119, verse 11 says, Your word I've treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. But he says, I've treasured it more than my necessary food. That's not talking about your snack drawer that you keep hidden away from the kids so you can kind of delve into that when you need it. 
He's talking about the very bit of food you need in order to live. And you have that morsel there. You're starving. You haven't eaten for days. You're hungry and you need to consume that in order to live. And Job says, more important to me than that piece of food is your word. You will not survive a trial until you treasure his word more than our necessary food. Jeremiah 15 says, your words were found and I ate them. Your words became for me a joy, the, the delight of my heart. For I've been called by your name. We take his word. John 17, 17, your word is truth. We take his word. We recognize this is the voice of God speaking to us, to you. And you hold it tightly. There's something important to notice here about what Job is saying. It's this. Where you turn in trials reveals where your faith is. Where you turn in a trial reveals where your faith actually is. Job's faith was in the unchanging God and his powerful word. When the trial came, the source to which you go for confidence, the source to which you go for comfort, the source to which you go for hope reveals where your faith actually is. But there's something else too here. Job did not wait till things got bad to turn to God. Job didn't wait till the trial started to then start to read his Bible and start to pray, start to commune with God. In fact, Job chapter 1 verse 5, don't turn back there, but it says this. When his sons and daughters were feasting in that house, it says Job would send and consecrate them. Rise up early in the morning with burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did continually. A hallmark of Job's life. If you woke up early and walked by Job's house, you'd find him out there praying and asking God to forgive his children because perhaps they sinned in some way and they haven't repented of it. And Job is begging God's forgiveness for his children. While the prosperity was still asleep. That's what he did every day. A daily discipline of pursuing God is what secured Job to a firm foundation. So when the trial came, he simply kept in place the pattern that was his all along. So you see the perception, verse 8 and 9. You see all that takes place in verse 10 and 11 and 12 of this pathway that Job walks on and the power that he gives from, or that he has from God. But as you get to verse 13 and 14, you see the purpose of all of this. We do get a little insight into the purpose of all of this. Verse 13, 14 says, but he is unique, and who can turn him? And what his soul desires, that he does. For he performs what is appointed for me, and many, many such decrees are with him. Job says God doesn't change. Not one bit. Not even Satan building a case against you can change God's love or his protection over you. Christ said this in John chapter 10, verse 28. I give eternal life to them, to his children, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one takes us from God's hand. No one, nothing. Because this is the God who never changes. Verse 14 says, he performs what is appointed for me. He does his plan. What he decided in the past is what he will do in the present. And he will accomplish his plan. This is the heart of surrender. What you hear in the voice of Job is not 
despair and defeat and just resolve to say, okay, God, you do what you're going to do anyway. This is a heart of humility, a heart of contentment that says, I trust you. You're my creator. You're my owner. You will not be distracted. You will not be deterred. You will not be defeated. You are my God. I don't have the answers, but I do have the owner. He's my portion. He's my defense. He's my Lord. There was a man named Ron Hamilton years ago who uh, born, grew up, lived a great life as a believer. Developed cancer in one of his eyes and lost one of his sight in one of his eyes. Um, maybe you know Ron Hamilton. Uh, he didn't know what to do with his life because now he's got cancer and I can't see. So you know what he did? He became Patch the Pirate. And Patch the Pirate told kids stories and uh, had an incredible ministry of telling the gospel to children as Patch the Pirate. But in reflecting on his own trial and going through it, he wrote the words to this song. He says, God never moves without purpose or plan when trying his servant or molding a man. Give thanks to the Lord that your testing seem long. In darkness, he giveth a song. Second verse says, I could, I could not see through the shadows ahead, so I looked at the cross of my Savior instead. I bowed to the will of the Master that day, then peace came and tears fled away. Now I can see testing comes from above. God strengthens his children and purges in love. My father knows best and I trust in his care. Through purging, more fruit I will bear. I rejoice in the Lord. He makes no mistakes. For he knoweth the end of each path that I take. For when I am tried and purified, I shall come forth as gold. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your comforting word that regardless of the size or the duration of the trial, whether it's the difficulties that we face in just the routines of life or whether it's something that brings us to a full stop and redefines the future for us, I praise you, God, that your word says that you are still sovereign over all. You still reign over all. You still are Lord over all. And though we don't know what you're doing, we can't see behind or in front of us or to the right or left. We can't tell how you're moving or what dialogue you're having or anything else you're doing. But what we do know is you have given us your word. And in your word, you have said that you will never leave us or forsake us. That you will try us and refine us. That we will come forth as gold with the endurance that we must have to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so with the promises we have from you and the assurance of your spirit in us, Lord, we praise you for your kindness to us and your love. In your name, amen.